Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib Ali hosting the show. Uh, and today we are doing a special tribute to one and only Rafael Nadal. And uh, this was supposed to happen, I think, maybe during the Christmas, New Year holidays. Uh, as uh, the plan was to do shows on the big three. We had Sasa Osmo uh, joining the show to talk about uh, Novak Djokovic. And then we had uh, Simon Graf joining myself and Andrew Burton to talk about his book on Roger Federer. And then we had planned this uh, special show on uh, Rafa, but, you know, then things got in the way and we thought we had to come up with the perfect timing than the off season. And that was the beginning of clay. Uh, clay season underway officially, uh, but big one, the Monte Carlo tournament starts uh, Monday. Uh, so on that note, let me welcome my guests here. Uh, it's Merta Tunga back on the show, uh, in-house commentator, analyst, good friend. Uh, Brie is back after a while. Uh, me and Brie haven't shared uh, this space in a long time. So looking forward to, you know, hosting her and getting her views on, you know, what a better topic than Rafa. And uh, making her podcast debut is a Twitter uh, powerhouse uh, Rafa fan, Noel. Uh, she's in Germany. So welcome, guys. Looking forward to this conversation. Hi, Sakib. Hello, everyone. Hi, Sakib. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. All right. So this is not an easy conversation because you really can't capture a career like this in, say, 45 minutes to an hour. And we won't even attempt to do this. So we'll try to keep this original. Uh, but again, originality would be hard because he's a player that has been talked endlessly over the last 16 years and continues to do so, uh, you know, capture all sort of imagination from fans, critics, and everyone in the media. Uh, but again, you know, each one of you, I think, you know, can personalize this experience for the fans of tennis and Rafa fans tuning into this podcast. So I think standard question here. We don't have to introduce ourselves here, but uh, I would just ask you guys and starting first from Bree, what is your first memory of Rafa? And, you know, did you become a fan right away? And what was, what was that moment like, you know, for you? Wow. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, my first memory of Rafa is from the 2007 Australian Open. Um, I had a friend trying to get me into watching tennis and that was the big event that was going on. And so he stuck out to me because he, you know, this was his man capris and sleeveless shorts era. And um, I think he played some crazy matches that year, but lost kind of early. And so that was my first time I really kind of noticed him. And then I didn't really watch tennis again for a while until the um, 2008 Wimbledon and I got sucked into that and I watched that literally all day and I can still remember exactly where I was for that entire day watching that match and um, that was when I was hooked that's when I became a Rafa fan. Uh, Nadal uh, what, what was your first memory of uh, the great Nadal? Um, I kind of remember going going home from school every day and it was around 3, 4 p.m. European time. And by that time, there was no football on the screen, so I'd start watching tennis. And then somehow I started watching Rafa, um, and it just stuck. And by 2007, I was just arguing with all of my tennis coaches and everyone at the club who would listen to me that Rafa would start winning on other surfaces than clay. Turns out I was right, so yeah, <laughs> happy we, with that. Definitely. We, we'll get into that, and I'm, I'm guilty as charged because... 
a lot of times, you know, because, because of my limited knowledge now, it seems like uh, I didn't write him off, but I thought the end will be near to the dominance and we'll get to it. Uh, lesson learned. And uh, Mert, uh, you want to share your uh, memory uh, when you first learned of Nadal or when you first saw him, because I'm sure uh, he's been on your radar uh, long before, you know, all of us. Well, I actually first saw him live in uh, the, the first time I saw him was live in uh, at the Sinsam Swedish Open in uh, Bostad in 2003. Uh, he was uh, 17 years old. I've heard of him, uh, you know, only because he uh, he he went to the semifinals of Wimbledon Juniors uh, the year before. Uh, that was his first junior international event. And uh, and just a couple of weeks earlier from that tournament in, uh, in Bostad in 2003, I think he broke some, I can't remember now, but he broke some kind of a record at Wimbledon again in his first participation for being the youngest guy since Becker to do, to do something, but I can't remember what. But uh, so uh, I've heard of his name, um, but I've never seen him, uh, TV or live. And then I, here I find myself a couple of weeks later in Bostad, Sweden, and, uh, and I remember watching uh, Magnus Norman practice because he was trying to come back from his injury and uh, I watched him practice a little bit because I was curious about professional players practice too. And then I scooted over and I think I caught the last couple of games of Nadal beating the third seed in that tournament, Yunus Elainaoui in a, in a three setter. And I just caught two games though. And then the funny thing is uh, a couple of days later, uh, me and my friend that I met uh, there in Boston that I haven't seen in years, a, a tennis player himself from a long time ago, uh, him and I are walking on the, um, uh, for people who may not know, the, the, the tournament club is right next to the beach, right there. And uh, we walked out and we started walking at the beach and, and Carlos Moya was the top seed in that uh, tournament. And here we go. We cross Moya and Nadal walking next to each other. My friend has no clue who Nadal is. He's, <laughs> he's, 17, he's 17 years old. He looks every bit the teenager. And... Um, my friend, you know, just is all about Moya and he walks. And me too, by the way, you know, Moya was the big star. So my friend walks up to him, shakes his hand. I shake Moya's hand. We only shake Rafa's hand because he's there with him walking. And um, and uh, my friend even has a picture taken with Moya. And I think he hands his bag over to Rafa to hold it while he gets a picture taken with uh, with, uh, with Moya. So it's a really funny story. And then we walked, we walked on. You know, we didn't think twice. I knew that was Rafa next to him only because I saw him play for a couple of games the day before. And then I watched this whole match against Nicolas Lapente in the semifinals. He had four match points and lost seven, five in the, uh, seven, six in the third to Lapente. And uh, that was something special. That was the first full match that I got to see him play. Even, you know, I thought he'd, I thought he'd be a special player. I didn't realize though this the magnitude special. of what he'd become. Yeah. No, that's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, again, my memory is not that, you know, again, never been to tournaments like you have. Uh, but uh, my memory was, I think, in the 2004s, uh, he had beaten Federer. That's one of the, I think, three Nadal-Federer matches that I think I haven't seen on TV. Uh, I don't know if it was live or maybe, I don't know. I was in retail that time. I just lost track of, you know, that match. But then I heard during the clay swing, Nadal was injured, and it was Guillermo Coria and Juan Carlos Ferrero's time at the best clay quarters, and a lot of people... It used to be ESPN Men's Tennis Forum. This is long before Twitter. I used to go there and be a silent observer. And a lot of people are talking about this kid. And then he had already beaten Federer. But then I first saw Nadal, I think, in the U.S. Open, second round on TV. Andy Roddick totally destroyed him. 
I think there was a six love set in there. And then Nadal breaks him, I think, the third set and does a fist pump. And then I say, okay, I've never seen something like this. I knew this guy is a prodigy, but he's totally getting destroyed in the scoreboard. And of course, now we know it's his live in the moment, point in, point out mentality, despite, you know, who's he playing. And, uh, and again, you know, now in hindsight, that made sense, but that didn't make sense then. You know, I laughed with a friend later. I said, yeah, this kid is good. But again, Roddick, you know, totally owned him. And then later in the year, him and Roddick played a great four-setter in the Davis Cup final in Valencia. Uh, and Nadal won that match. And and, and, and the rest is history. So again, uh, th- that's my memory. And, you know, again, like everyone here, I didn't see, you know, the, the kind of career he's going to build. So I'm going to stay with Mert here and then come back full circle here. So Mert, again, uh, when was that moment when you realize that this guy is going to be like, you know, multiple Grand Slam champion, maybe just on clay, or maybe you, you realize at some point that he's going to win beyond clay. When was that moment for you? Um, for me, that was, uh, I would say, 2006, because uh, he went to the finals of Wimbledon and gave uh, a fairly tough match to, to probably the best version of Roger at, uh, at Wimbledon. And he already did beat Roger twice on hard course before that, too. And, uh, you know, I felt that at that point, having already dominated on, on clay courts, that I thought he'd go on and win uh, majors and big tournaments on other surfaces. Majors, let's, let's, let's say it that way. I, I, you know, I believe that he'd win majors in other surfaces also. It was, I didn't think it was that far away. And, uh, you know, pretty much every legendary name in the, in the history of open tennis anyway, usually end up mastering one surface first and then they start winning um, on other surfaces too. And I, in my opinion, in 2006, uh, Rafa was already not far from uh, being one of the best on, on, on other surfaces too. So same question, Naval, uh, for you. When did you realize that, you know, the guy you're rooting for, he's going to be so special and he's going to win a lot more? And what was the timeline? What year was that when you thought, okay, he's going to kind of enter the history books and change a lot of things? Um, well, I can't really say an exact year or an exact month because I was really young, so it's all a bit hazy now. But um, I can definitely remember thinking he he never seems to doubt himself. Like, he doubts himself. Of course, we know that from his press, press conferences. But on court, you never see any of that. You can always see him trying to figure out the next step. And it's also, I don't know, he, he just always seemed so determined that I never had the... That I never had a doubt that he would figure out whichever way he could win on any other surface. And at some point, I started believing that too. Like, oh, if he believes he can win whatever, I'm going to believe that too, and he can win anything. Um, no, that, that that makes sense. That's pretty organic. I think a lot of fans, you know, when you get invested into a player's success week in, week out, and tennis is like such a, you know, yearly sport, doesn't have an offseason. So I think that's the right attitude. I think a lot of us... When we got into tennis, I think we got behind a player, and that's that's probably the way we felt. So, Bri, you you saw Nadal coming really into his own in one of the most iconic matches of all time. Was it the moment that you say, "Okay, this is my sport. This is the guy, and and he's going to be that good, and I'm going to be here, you know, as long as he's playing." <laughs> I definitely thought this is my guy for the ATP. I was really hooked by Rafa. Um, I wasn't sure yet if he could win on all surfaces because I hadn't watched so much tennis yet but um, I knew that everyone thought Federer was really good 
And he was really good in that Wimbledon final and Rafa won against him. So I figured he had a good shot at winning other majors as well. But definitely the 2009 Australian Open, I would say, cemented in my mind that Rafa could be great on hard, hard court. Ironically, he hasn't won there since. <laughs> but um, the matches he played against Verdasco and that final against Federer, where he was just dog tired and still came back in one in five sets. And it was a great match from Federer, even though many would probably say he should have won. Um, but that was definitely when I figured he could win on all surfaces. And then, of course, you know, fast forward to 2010, everyone's wondering, when is Rafa going to win a U.S. Open? Is he ever going to win one? And then finally he does. And it's it's just uh, it's pretty crazy how many he has now in his trophy case. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just incredible. Uh, again, I think I was also when we get to that conversation part where, you know, shed some notions, you know, you, you learn, you know, a lot about. I think you learn a lot about yourself, your knowledge through these players. So yeah, Rafa winning on other surfaces. There was a lot of conversation that used to go on that the faster course won't suit his game. But I think Murt can probably talk about it and so can you guys. I think it's the bounce. You know, I think he has won on faster courts in Canada a few times and he can hang with the best on the faster course. I think it's the bounce that really, uh, I think, is his little bit of an Achilles if if other top players have to find a way. And uh so, Bri, let, let me stay with you. You know, so this journey, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a fantastic journey and it's still going on. He's the favorite for this upcoming clay season. So what were the major moments, you know, like where you thought uh, that Nadal needs to reinvent? Are you worried as a fan? Because there has to be few, not a lot, because the career is pretty, you know, pretty awesome. I mean, the numbers don't lie. So were there any moments when you saw your man, like you thought he has to evolve? Was there a moment of doubt in fandom? Not like giving up on him, but you wanted him to keep pace with with the standard, maybe Djokovic, for example. I would say early on, like, even though Rafa was still playing at a very high level and, you know, starting to peak on his own, um, the rivalry between Djokovic and Nadal between 2010 and I would say about 2013 throughout all the clay events was just a really high level, in my opinion. Um, I know they played back-to-back years, I think, in Madrid. And the Madrid 2010 final was just so brutal. And it was almost like, how are these guys going to make it to the French Open if they're playing so hard at this event? And um, so those were times where I was a little worried because Djokovic was really competitive and it was good to push Rafa, but of course I wanted to see him continue to win. And then, you know, later on when he started to struggle right around 2015, um, during that period of time, I would say I definitely wanted him to change some things up. And of course he came to that realization himself. He hired Moya and he's changed some things in his game. He's practicing in different ways and um, it's all benefit him and, now he has crazy longevity records when, like you said, back in the day, everyone was like, oh, his knees are going to give out. Um, his body's not built for tennis. But here he is over 30 and he's won the most majors after 30 now, I think, um, with six. Yep. 
No, that's pretty amazing. Again, the way the history books have been written have been rewritten by these three guys. I mean, uh, I'll include the other two, even though this is a show on Nadal. I, I doubted like all three would last this long because you know I was coming from the old school where I saw the Beckers and the Sampras call it a day at 29 and 31, and I thought there's no way you know you know these guys will be playing this well and this long. I remember 2010. One of my close friends, uh, he's a huge Rafa fan. He's not a tennis fan, but he's just Nadal fan. So whenever we played tennis, we would talk about Nadal, and somehow he thought like I'm some authority. So he used to ask me these questions, like we're driving for lunch after after a game of tennis, and I think it's 2010. Nadal had just won, you know, the French Open a few months ago, beating Robin Soderling, and he asked me similar thing: uh, How many more for Rafa? You think? And I I, I looked so foolish. I said maybe two more. He said no way. He's going to win five more. And I, we still talk about this, you know. We don't live in the same state. And I said, no. I mean, he's only 23, but I think at some point his physical style will catch up. And I was just giving reasons because, you know, how the sport has been, you know, from McEnroe to Sampras, people have burnout, people lose motivation. There's going to be career-changing injury, and here we are, 11 years later, he's still the alpha male in, on, on the clay side and still a very big factor at every slam he enters, and you know, world number three. So yeah. Uh, lesson learned, you know, and it it was not necessarily from doubt. I was just putting like some stupid law of averages that is going to catch up. And same thing, when Federer went through twenty thirteen, I don't think he's going to be playing that long. And you know, I was not alone. But then here they are, and you know, and Novak is, you know, Novak continues to rewrite, you know, history books every week. So uh, yeah, that was like a digression there. But uh, Noel, what's your memory? Uh, I know uh, when was there a doubt through other fans, and you you worried that your guys, you know, uh, is going to come short at some point. Uh, was there a moment? Um, I think it's it's almost a cliche, but even in 2015, 2016, I was still arguing with the same tennis coaches that he would make a comeback. I mean, I didn't think he would win five more majors or six, or I didn't think that would happen. But I still had this. Belief at least that he would have at least one good uh, run in him because 2015, 2016, it didn't look like he was um, comfortable on court. I didn't think it was just physicality, but also mentally that he was wasn't uh, feeling great. Um, so I always had maybe it was more of a hope that he would also still have one more uh, good run. But um, I mean, there are also also these. Always these doubts. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen Rafa practice, but if you have, he he hits the ball. I don't know, ten times flatter, and uh, so much. He's so aggressive in, in in his practices, and you watch that and think, oh, how how is this the same match player we watch <laughs> a hmm. few hours later? Yeah, practice so, routines yeah. are pretty interesting. You're right. Yeah. No, continue. I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, continue, please. Not okay. I mean, I was just. Uh, these are sometimes when when we're watching like a, a match, and I'm thinking, okay, but if he would maybe loosen up a bit and start hitting out the way he does at practice, he wouldn't be on court for longer than I don't know twenty mm. minutes. <laughs> sure. So again, Bert, uh, not the same question to you, but I think uh, do you uh, because you've been around the tour, you you've you know you work with players, you've, you've been a player yourself. Uh, so, do you feel this nuance, like how um, what uh, Nawal made this observation, how players are different in practice? You want to maybe elaborate on that? Yeah, I would. I would add to what Noel said when she makes a great point. By the way, Noel, you 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 are so correct. He uh, 
uh, not only does Rafa hit the ball hard in practice, but he does it from the first shot on. It, it seems like he just goes out and and um, and you know maybe a lot of players will spend two, three, four minutes uh, hitting slow and getting into the rhythm. But uh, if you watch Rafa's practice, after about the first five or six shots, the guy is almost on uh, full throttle. You know, so f- fifth uh, gear. And uh, and he continues like that the rest of the practice. He's got a, He's got a target, and he goes after it, and and it rubs off on on his match play too. Uh, but but for me, um, you know, I I felt that um, Rafa and uh, of course I don't approach Rafa from a fan's point of view. I'm a fan of Rafa as well as Roger and as well as Novak and as well as many other players. So uh, for me, the fact that Rafa was able to um, to, to come back and have the year he had in 2010. And then once again in 2013, where he began the season with the, with the clay court circuit in South America, you know, by then I felt that, uh, you know, an injury here and there were not necessarily going to stop him, that he had the fortitude to, uh, to come back from injuries and still reach the top level. And, uh, and, and, you know, this is the same, by the way, with Roger and Novak. They, 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 they've both proven the same thing too. And I don't think it is... Um, uh, that that in any of you guys or anyone else who thinks the way you guys did, that at some point along the line that that would be it for anyone, any one of those three, or that they would never come back from a X Y Z injury. There is uh, there's nothing wrong with that. In hindsight, in retrospect, people can look back and laugh. But uh, but just like you said, Saki, but you know, back in those days, you never expected players to have this long a career, and it was not a it was not a stupid thing to say, you know, at some point that, okay, that may be it for Roger or that may be it for Rafa or that may be it for Novak. That's why these guys are who they are. And they've revolutionized the way people uh, view tennis and conceive, you know, perceive uh, tennis players' careers. You know, they, they've, done, they've done things that, uh, that have never been done before. So that's pretty interesting what you just said. So again, a digression, but I didn't plan it, plan it but I think... You know, I think Naval opened the door and now I'm going to ask you one more question. So what is the, when we talk about these three, right, there's a lot of polarized conversation and a lot of fans and analysts are harsh on the younger players because they say, oh, this guy hasn't won this. Rafa was two-time champion. Oh, this guy hasn't won this. Novak won, you know, Miami and won the Australian Open next year, you know, and all those numbers, right? So what is going to be the legacy of these three guys? They've professionalized the sport. Longevity is one of them. So not to make prediction, but do you see like, uh, it's hard to see like how much slams the next guy, next wave of players will win, but do you see they have just made the sport a little older? And do you think a lot of these guys will be playing into the mid thirties? That's going to be the norm. Thanks to these three guys. Yes. I would say that the, the, the biggest legacy these three guys will leave is that uh, we're no longer uh, in that limited belief that tennis players, uh, you know, have their 20s and maybe a year or two into their early 30s where they can play their top level tennis and then they'll decline or they'll retire. The, these guys completely changed that, uh, that, uh, that point of view. And, and Roger led the way here, in all fairness. Uh, you got to give him that. He led the way here. He's, he, even uh, Novak and uh, Rafa uh, probably saw what Roger could do in his late 30s, and now believe that they can they can continue that long too, and and along with the rest of the way. But yeah, I mean these three guys are showing the rest of the world that the tennis career can actually peak in your 30s, and it doesn't have to be. Um, and there are some players who are peaking in their 30s, by the way, early 30s now, which would have been unheard of 
15 years ago. So the, in my opinion, other than the numbers, the number of uh, majors that they're winning, et cetera, et cetera, titles and everything, um, a guy like Rafa, for example, his, his legacy is going to be just what we just talked about. You know, you can, uh, you can be a physical player and still have a long lasting career. Although, you know, he was hampered here. He's continues to be hampered here and there with injuries. He sets the legacy that he, you can have a long career despite having to play grueling matches on, on the red clay and win French open, uh, you know, over 10 times and, and win so many titles on so many, on so many surfaces. And, I don't think it would be fair for anyone to sit, you know, for anyone to expect their favorite player in the future to to and hold them up to Rafa's standards on clay or on or on on any other surface or to Roger or to Novak. But uh, but first, you know, if you have a favorite player in the 2030s, see if they can first of all reach number one, maybe win a couple of majors, and then go from there. But these guys have set a standard that'll be talked about for sure during our lifetimes. I think. Yeah, I think this is a crazy, I think, you know, coincidence for these players to coexist and just, uh, I mean, it, I mean, again, like you, Mert, I've been, I've been following tennis as a student for a long, long time since the Becker days. And this is something unique, you know, uh, uh, let's see, you know, how long they keep going. Of course, Novak and Rafa have a lot of mileage left compared to Federer, but I think let's see, it's, uh, uh, you know, what more records fall by the way. So, Brie, let me come back to you. Longevity has been Rafa's Achilles heel from many observers, and he has proven a lot of people wrong, and I've already given my say. So, despite, you know, a guy who has had perennial, you know, injuries, uh, how do you see longevity when you look back? And, you know, uh, do you have a moment when you thought, okay, he won't be playing top-shelf tennis by his age? Was that a moment for you? at some point maybe you didn't say it out on twitter but uh, what were your what is your recollection if you had a similar moment um i would say the worst moment would probably be the 2015 us open um when he lost to fognini uh that was just a tough period of time and i didn't think necessarily he would have to retire or his level was going to drop out of the top 10 or anything but it was just, I could see how hard he was trying to come back and the results necessarily weren't going his way at the time. And it was just a very frustrating period. Um, and then finally he started to get things going again and he had a great 2017. And so um, that was just a great French Open performance in 2017 against Wawrinka. And it was kind of like the cherry on top of all that hard work from that that uh, unfortunate U.S. Open to uh, to one of his many comebacks, like Mert was talking about. No, I think that's a very interesting uh, match you bring up. So again, not to have like this interview kind of thing. Every same question, if you guys, uh, for all three of you, let me just take Bree's response and bring Noel in here. So Noel, how how do you rate the 2017 Roland Garros win over Wawrinka? I honestly was split. I thought, you know, the way Wawrinka played Djokovic, and we sometimes forget matchups that uh, single-handers have struggled against Nadal, like, for a lifetime. So what is your memory of that match before and after? Were you predicting, like, that kind of a thumping? Because Stan's been playing pretty decent tennis himself. So walk us through that moment. And I think, Bree, that's an excellent moment because uh, of the last four or five years, that has to be the most convincing win along with what he had over Djokovic uh, last year. Um, 
No, I was, I was, I mean, I, I don't want to underestimate, I didn't want to underestimate Bavrinka at the time, but um, we, let's, let's be honest, like the, he only lost to Bavrinka twice, if I, in case I remember correctly, once at that Australian Open um, with that back injury. And then the other one was indoor hard courts, I three, want to three say. Three times. He also lost three to him times, okay. in, in Rome 2015. Yeah, well, 2015 doesn't count. So <laughs> we've already discussed that. Um, <laughs> um, but um, no, I mean, I think 2017 was a very high level for from Rafa the whole week. So coming into the final, I was I was pretty confident. I think the only the only way he he would have lost is, is if he had been very nervous or. Um, like he would have had to lose it and not Vavrinka because his level was was just great the whole clay season, and it was the first one in years that he had played this well. No, you, you're absolutely right. So, Matt, I mean, again, relay now. Uh, it's over to you. So, through the evolution of uh, you know Rafa's tennis, like if he did some fine you know uh, fine tune his game or made some changes that were not you know privy to the naked eye, like I'll count myself. I don't know sometimes when players have changed their footwork or they, how they're coming around to hit an inside-out forehand or if the first step is not explosive. I learn all these things from you. So if you were to handpick two moments in Rafa's evolution where you notice significant changes, you know, for him to get better or was it a reaction of just maybe he had lost a step? I don't know. I'm just putting words here, but pick any two moments where you could draw like big changes in his game. Yeah, I, I think uh, in mine are going to be kind of boring because uh, he has uh, tweaked his uh, his toss, for example, his serve over the years. I don't think at the end of the day it made that big a difference. His serve may have gotten a little bit better or his second serve may have gained a little bit of a uh, 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 kick perhaps. And, uh, and, and he, has tw- he has tried to tweak his uh, forehand backswing a couple of times. But, uh, most, but then again, he mostly stuck with the same forehand. But I would go... Footwork from the year 2008 to 2010. Uh, 2008 was a key year. I'm sure for many Rafa fans, that's probably his most special year. But in my opinion, his career year is 2010. That's his best year in his career. Uh, better than 2008. And the biggest difference being footwork. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you want to, for example, see... Um, uh, give, if, you, if you want examples, you know, on hard courts in 2008... I didn't think his movement, and I'm saying this in retrospect, of course, I didn't think this in 2008 particularly, but looking back uh, in 2010, I remember thinking, you know, his movement is so much better. And, and over the years, I went back and watched matches and, you know, on hard courts, his movement was not uh, five-star movement yet, you know, against uh, against Novak in the semifinals of Indian Wells that year, for example, he did, he did more particularly well. And same in Miami when he lost to Davidenko, uh, he's kind of half a step slower than he was in 2010. And it shows it, show, it shows the most on the returns where he, his first step se- seemed to leave uh, a bit of room for improvement. Uh, Davidenko is not even an explosive server, but got several clean aces on, on Rafa uh, that uh, Rafa a couple of years later would probably get his racket on if not return deep. And because he's out of position on many serves, his returns landed short. And if you know anything about Nikolai at all, Davidenko, you'd be aware of his efficiency from inside the baseline. So he was, you know, jamming on those. But then on, but then on in 2010, 
his footwork is just a little bit better, clearly better than uh, in, for me, for me, clearly better, but you know, to, someone else may think just a little bit better. And, uh, and it shows if, if, if you want examples, watches uh, Indian Wells semifinal against Burdich. And uh, again, it's Wimbledon final against Burdich and his movement is better than a couple of years before the, the three breaks that he gets in the match actually all occur because he's getting the returns back in the court on Burdich's huge serves, much bigger than Davidenko's in 2008, especially in the second set, the closer set in that final. And, uh, and Burdich's serve in 2010 were certainly bigger than Novak or Nikolai's in 2008. And uh, you could, that's where you can tell the biggest difference uh, for, for people who like, you know, nit, who nitpick on these things. But uh, that's... Um, yeah, and it was also his biggest year because it came on the heels of a dry run by Rafa of uh, 11 months without a tournament trophy. But that was the biggest difference between those two years. And I think in 2014, then he had, uh, I think Nadal's career um, goes as his forehand goes. I thought his forehand was the best forehand in the world for those few years. And starting in 2014, I think his forehand starts declining a little bit. And um and that you know he had a wrist injury in 2014. I'm, I wonder if that had that had to do that played a role. But since then, his forehand hasn't been as well. But but in return, I think he's aware of it and he's flattened out his backhand in his later years. So he's uh, I think he's hitting his backhand as well as uh, he's ever hit, and uh, he's trying to keep the points shorter. So those are the main you know shifts that I can observe over the years. So Mart again. Uh... A lot has been talked about the flattening of the backhand. And is it something just keeping up with, you know, like, let's be honest, like Djokovic has been the standard of the game, right? And their rivalry is, uh, you know, has been magnified. Uh, there's not probably anything left to talk about. So you think that's uh, that uh, reinvention is just to keep up with your biggest rival or the two biggest rivals? Or it's more like also making if there is a slight loss of step somewhere. No, I think it's it's not just for Novak. I think it's just in general for his career to be the because the, 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 a flat hard backhand is actually something that Rafa has. He's had that uh, for most of his career. He's got that shot. He just hasn't used it as much. Now he goes he goes to it more often to perhaps keeps the keep keep the point short. Uh, you know, maybe on a thirty love point to get to forty love quicker. And uh, he he does he does it more in the earlier rounds too. I've noticed where. Um, where to finish the match quicker and um, it's something that he needs to do he needs to keep he needs to shorten the points as as he ages and it's this is not unique to Rafa this is unique to uh, to almost every uh, tennis player out there so it's it's not a surprise you know he's got that shot sure I agree so again the professor unpacked quite a lot there so let me personalize this podcast a little more so we talked about your first memory of Rafa. Have you been uh, lucky to watch him live yet? And if you have, what is your favorite match? I have seen him live. Um, my first time was not a great experience. It was Miami 2015, I believe. Um, and Rafa ended up retiring that year. Uh, was, he was, was pl- a Jumor match, right? Yes, <laughs> that's the match. Um, so that was my first time ever seeing Rafa. Um, but I saw him again at the U.S. Open um, 2019 when he played Hatchinoff. And that was probably the best match that I've ever seen live out of all the matches that I've seen from the level. 
Um, the crowd was really engaged in Arthur Ashe Stadium, and I was a little high up in the stadium, but I could see everything that was going on still, and just the energy was really good. So that that's probably the best match I've seen, um, and it includes Rafa, so that's great. Yeah, uh, Naval, you have uh, uh, have you had the uh, chance to see him live a few times? Um, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him a few times. Um, I've seen him at Monte Carlo, at Madrid. Um, I mean, he he never won a tournament while I was there, so maybe I should stay away from the Masters <laughs> event. <laughs> um, I did watch him against Medvedev in um, 2019 at the at the O2. Um, you know that that one when he came back from five one down in the yeah. final set. So I think for, that's the best match I've seen him play. Um, at least from from in terms of atmosphere and uh, like how exciting it was. Maybe he played a higher level in Monte Carlo when I saw him. Um, that O2 match was definitely special. I mean, yeah. a 5-1 comeback is yeah, that something kind of, I expected to see. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's like a ticket you know, you'll remember forever because that kind of a comeback and associated with his never say die mentality and then you know he puts one of the show for the ages yeah so good for you to to have seen that match yeah I, I, again uh, my my first live match was in montreal uh i went to see the masters uh, event i bought like ticket for like four or five days we drove from boston and that was a weird tournament federer withdrew hewitt withdrew and safin withdrew and and the day we were going i think uh, Roddick lost so all big names were falling and, okay, and Rafa had won the French Open, but he was not that high on my radar, but I was lucky to enough, enough to see him three times that week. He played Grosjean and first time I saw someone's ball, even in practice, his forehand topspin is such a pop. You could see he's going to be special. And then he played a great final, a rain-interrupted final against Agassi, who was in the absolute twilight fan favorite, probably his last time, I think, in, in Canada. So I was one of the maybe handful of 10, 15 guys rooting for uh, Rafa against a legend then. And that was a great final. I think Rafa won <laughs> four six six three six two something like that. And my friend and his wife, you know, they were fully in uh, Agassiz's camp. So, yeah, that's that's a memory. So, so yeah, again, uh, I think this, this, this kind of conversation can go on forever. But uh, let's uh, look at through Rafa's prism, you know, with the upcoming clay season. He's... You know, he's going to be the biggest favorite till someone, you know, says otherwise. And it's not going to change in one match or one city, right? You know, he's looking good. But uh, uh, Nawal, I'll ask you this and then we'll do a full uh, cycle on this. Who are the four, five, actually five names that you, you're interested outside of Rafa? It could be, you know, someone who can challenge him. It could be someone whose tennis is good or someone who's going to make a great run. So uh, floor is yours. Um. I would definitely say Tsitsipas. I think he will be the second best clay court player this year. I, I think Tim is still, of course, he's a contender, but I still think he's um, mentally a bit tired or just recovering from winning that uh, crazy US Open. Um, so I think Tsitsipas will be the main contender, I think, on clay this year. Of course, Nova could be competitive, and I expect... Um, I do expect Daniel to have a better season this year on clay. I mean, he, he did have good results in 2019 before completely, I mean, he, he reached um, 
the final Barcelona, I, I think, and um, and also uh, in Monte Carlo, he reached finals or semis. Um, so I think Medvedev should have a better year on clay. Maybe that's just hopeful thinking, but um, as a fifth player, I honestly can't see anyone else doing anything on clay. <laughs> yeah, so I think I'll come back to you with another question soon. So a break. Uh, Who's on your radar uh, for the clay season outside of uh, Rafa? I would say on my radar is Yannick Sinner. Um, I'm excited to see what he can do. Last year, he beat Alexander Zverev um, at Roland Garros in the fourth round. So I'm excited to see what he can do this year now that he's a little older. Um, The other lists are the usuals. Um, We've got Djokovic. Um, I still have TM up there, Sitsipas. Um, who else? I would like to see Musetti do something, but like you said, Sakab, I think he's a little too young, so um, nothing too crazy with him yet. And I also have a wild card that I'm watching is Aslan Karetsev. Mm. Um, apparently, Monte Carlo will be his first ever main tour clay draw. Um, So I'm kind of excited to see what he can do after his Australian run and his great kind of hardcourt season. And he goes up against center. (laughs) I know, unfortunately. (laughs) So a tough. Yeah, and the winner winner gets Djokovic. Yeah, that's a loaded draw right there for those three. (laughs) So so over to you, Mert, again, uh, if you want to add your list uh, and uh, the observations, you know, that you will be looking through through the lens of four or five names. Yeah, Bri and Noel co- covered it very well. I'm, I'm, I'll go with Djokovic as uh, Nadal's main rival for the clay court season. No surprise there. And then Team and Tsitsipas next, the two of them. Uh, and then uh, I put Dimitrov and Rublev, possible dangerous uh, opponents. And then question marks by Musetti, Sinner, and Karatsev in the same way that Bri did. Okay, so no one took uh, Alcaraz's name again. Just too young or too early? Uh, or, um, yeah, to, just 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 too early. It'd be it'd be a, it'd be a stunning achievement if Car- if Alcaraz did anything of and and this is not to make our you know Alcaraz fans mad, but it'd be a stunning achievement if Alcaraz did something extraordinary in a ATP 1000 event or at French Open at this point. Yeah, I don't have to give the disclaimer. I'll cross yeah. fans mad. It doesn't take much for fans to get mad. <laughs> uh, so, so Noel, I mean, again, a different uh, digression here, but it looks like, again, I'm a little envious living in Europe, especially for tennis. I think there are a lot of easy ways to get around. It looks like you've seen a lot of tournaments. So if you want to tell me and Bree, Mert probably has seen a lot of tournaments himself or the other listeners. What are some of the best clay court tournaments that you've been to and which one would you endorse if someone has to do one clay court tournament uh, or maybe two tournaments? So, yeah, let us uh, let us hear your thoughts on that. Oh, um, so my favorite, the absolute favorite one I've been to um, is Monte Carlo. I did expect it to be a very, I don't know, very country club uh, and rich people, but it wasn't like that at all. You had very loud Italian fans because it's very close to the border. They're supporting Fonini and also very loud French fans um, for all the French players. So it was, it was a great atmosphere and very, very relaxed, way more than I expected. So it's, and, um, and it's not expensive. So it's even cheaper Mm. than Madrid. Um, 
Yeah, so it's definitely out of the master's events, the one I would recommend the most. It's also very easy to to uh, like to get to. It's just a train. Um, like I stayed in Nice and went with the train every day. And um, um, on on the women's side, I would definitely say the the WTA Stuttgart uh, tournament is honestly one of the best tournament like it's amazing it's uh, the tickets are great uh, the field is always nice and like i i remember watching in the third row and paying 20 euros so <laughs> it's definitely amazing so again let's go back to monte carlo you you shed some notions right there because i also thought the same that's going to be pretty uh, very snobbish kind of a place and <laughs> that's may, like shedding. may i interject here for for a second sure uh, I- I think it makes a difference that Noel stayed in uh, in Nice. Okay. Monte Carlo is incredibly expensive. If you if you plan to go to to the tournament and actually stay in Monte Carlo, uh, you need budget may should not be budget need not be a concern for you. No, but but why would you stay in Monte Carlo? I mean, there are also like I know a lot of um, because I met I met a lot of fans there, and none of us was stay, staying in Monte Carlo. Some were staying in Menton. In like a another small city on the other side of Monte Carlo, um, but no one really stayed in Monte Carlo. It's just in, insanely expensive, so, and so the how, train. How, yeah, how long is the train ride from Nice? You said. Um, I think the train ride is like half an hour, so it's actually and and you arrive like directly at the tournament. So the the train there's a train station, and then there's a shuttle organized by the tournament. So there you go. I thought so. it was good. Brie, are you taking notes? Because I am. <laughs> well, that's a great I know. solution. Yeah, Noel's no solution is great. Yeah. yeah, I would love to go to Monte Carlo. Yeah, my, my goal is, again, you know, I try to go, you know, as a part-time uh, media, you know, analyst, or at least, you know, not analyst, media pass. So my wish list is either uh, Estoril or uh, I think Madrid. Let's see if I can make it happen next year. This is the COVID year. Uh, I think nothing will happen. Uh, yeah, I think I want I'm to. I'm surprised you surprised you pick uh, you picked Estoril over Munich. Don't you want to watch tennis in the snow? It's we're famous for it. Actually, I have a friend in Munich. Yeah, Munich is is a close third because I know someone there who used to work with me in states. He moved there with his wife. So yeah, that's another tournament. I told him if I can get in, I'll get him as a photographer. <laughs> you know, if, I don't know, like the media application. You know how extensive and you know uh, how strict they are. But I like two fifties in general after my experience in Newport because you can walk up to players and talk to them. Uh, Miami, the 1000 is the pinnacle in Montreal, where I think it's ATP's biggest events outside of the tour finals. So, you know, a small B like me, you know, doesn't have much of a say to request a player. Yeah, but I think I would, of course, the dream is to cover the French Open one day with Mert, but it's not going to happen. So I'm realistic. You know, I'll probably live through Mert's, Mert's diaries in the podcast. I don't think they'll ever let someone like me in there because let's face it, there are a lot of world-class podcasts and a lot of people that pool is already, I think, uh, getting closed uh, because a lot of people try to get media access through the podcast and it's just not going to happen. But uh, I was fortunate to see Roland Garros for five days in 2016, saw Nadal uh, destroy Bagnis. I think in the next day he retired because of his wrist injury. So yeah, that would have been an unfulfilled trip not to see him in his element there. Uh, Bray, what is your wish list? Which tournament would you like to go to see Rafa or, or world's best click or tennis? Uh, do you have a bucket list going? I know I have. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would like to do the whole uh, 
clay swing. I'd like to go to Monte Carlo, Rome, <laughs> Madrid. Why not? Um, and then in, in Paris, I think that would be amazing because I've never been to Europe. So just mm. being in all those different countries would be a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and Naval is in Munich. So, I mean, if you want to watch uh, the non-Big Three, I think that's a great stop. I think it, it, it always attracts decent field. It happens the same week as Easter Hill, I think. Oh, I may have to pick Estoril as well over Munich <laughs> because uh, I'm not a snow girl. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I like to be in the heat. Yeah, Munich is a, a good third for me. I guess uh, I want to see players from close proximity and probably bag an interview or two. So otherwise, yeah, you know, French Open is, you know, I would like to do it. Or Same for Wimbledon. I think Federer destroyed Wimbledon. Like the camping starts five days before. I think that's not going to happen. I, I'm too old to sleep in a, you know, in a tent to get a ticket. So I think that's, that's going to happen when these guys are retired. Matt, uh, you've seen it all. Uh, any tournaments uh, through the lens of Rafa you want to tell the listeners uh, is a cool tournament to attend in Europe? Through the lens of Rafa, I'd go with Monte Carlo, um, Rome, and uh, Paris, French Open. Those three. I, I think um, doing a whole round, Brie, I, I, I know it sounds great, but uh, seven weeks of uh, spending time at tournaments and traveling, you're going to be exhausted. Oh, yeah. right? So you, you better, you should, you should include a break, a, a week break in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Very true. No, it's so funny. I, but, you know, when I was dating my wife, you know, she had a place in New York. So I saw, I got tickets for the U.S. Open for six days and I used to go alone. She's not a tennis fan. And by the sixth day, Murd is right. I was so tennised out. I sat through rain to see Safin, you know, and you know, all the stuff crazy fans do. And the sixth day, I just gave my ticket for the night session. Ferrer was playing. I gave it to a guy wearing, you know, an Argentina shirt. And, you know, we we're talking. I say, he said, he say, how much? I said, no, I'm done. It's my treat. I'm going home. And I, I thought I would never say this, but I think sometimes it takes a toll to watch, you know, 13, 14 hours of tennis. And, you know, I admit, you know, it took a toll. <laughs> And so, I mean, yeah, this again, I, I'm digressing a lot. I apologize, guys. It's not about me. It's about Nadal and you guys. So anything you want to cover before we wrap this up that we didn't cover? I kind of wanted to ask Mert something. Sure, go ahead. Because he's, he's like the expert here. So uh, like oh, the on. technical expert. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, as, a, as a fan, I've always like watched Rafa and the serve has been... Like it's fluctuated a lot. Like we, we had amazing um, times, like maybe in 2010 or even 2013, the hard, the North American um, hardcore swing season, that was, he was amazing. And then somehow that disappears. And it's, I don't know, I've never understood what happens to the serve. <laughs> well, but, but, you know, his serve goes and comes back. It's not like, it, it, you know, for example, the time you mentioned, it, it's not like it went away and then it never came back again. He can, he, he's still, even today, you know, he can go out and serve a very good first serve or a second serve. It's, he does change it here and there. You know, the way he takes his elbow up, for example, he changed it for a while. He would separate his arm from the body for a little while. But if you, I'll be honest with you, uh, if you ask me, you know, where his serve is, was in 2010 and then 2012 and then 13 and then 2017 and today i don't think it's that big a difference whether you know it's it's not much less of a weapon now than it was back then it's not much more of a weapon now than it was back then 
Uh, he's, he just has a solid serve. And I, I've actually asked him this question too, by the way, about his serve in, in 2013 in Cincinnati. He, he played an incredible match where he served really well. And, uh, and I asked him, you know, if he feels like his serve is a, is a huge weapon. And, and he actually said the exact same thing. He said, uh, you know, I think I have a good serve, nothing great, but just a good serve. Uh, not, not a bad serve either. But on the, at the level of top ATP players, I think my serve is just good. That's basically what he said. Those were the sentences as close as I can get to, to his sentences from, from memory. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything, because when you said, I don't understand what happened to his serve, it had a, it had a negative connotation. And I, and I, don't, I don't know if, uh, I don't, I'm not sure you, mean, you said you meant that in a negative way. I mean, I, I do remember 2010, for example, and he was almost untouchable on serve. I mean, of course, 2010 was his best year ever. He was, he was, the forehand was his best. And of course there are other elements, but I don't think even, even in terms of speeds, he's never really served consistently that, um, that quickly since 2010, I would say. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, no, I'd argue that his serve in 2013 was was just as effective. But um, yeah, I mean that's yeah that's just uh, it depends on your perspective, I guess. I, speed is not necessarily the only thing, but I think he's had a very reliable serve throughout his career. Sure, Bree, you have something for Mert? Um, sure. Well, I just wanted to add first that I think the reason why his serve hasn't been as consistently as fast as that U.S. Open was because he said he had some kind of shoulder injury or the change in how he was gripping the racket, I think, was injuring his arm somehow. Um, So I think that's why his serve has never been like that again. Um, But like Mart said, I think it's been pretty effective over his career. And I also just wanted to say that one thing that we haven't talked about in a way that Rafa's kind of revolutionized the game uh, in a low key way is the return stance. Now, almost all the ATP guys are standing farther back and, um, and uh, giving themselves more time on return. Um, But for Mert, I want to ask realistically, how many more French opens can Rafael Nadal win? I think he can win a few more. Uh, he's, uh, well, the, of course the classic line is we saw what he just did recent, you know, in the last French open to, to his top rival. Uh, but yeah, you know, barring injuries, he can win a few more. I don't want to put a number on it, but I, I think saying he'll only win one more would be extremely conservative at this point. Uh, I would, I would expect him to win more than one. I don't know how many. But, um, you, you know, you, may, you bring up an interesting point. I, I do want to say this, um, and I hope this is not going to make uh, Noel or Bree mad, but uh, uh, the, returning from the back of the court is actually not something that Rafa invented. That has happened before in the past. And uh, if you look at Guillermo Villas uh, in the early 80s in, at the Australian Open, for example, he did that on and off. And even Ivan Lendl early in his career did that on and off. But Rafa does it consistently in other words he starts the first point of the match and does it all the way to the end of the match and uh it has and 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 another misconception i think about that is uh is that uh somehow that's uh that's a that's an unbeatable formula 
and it's not. It has also worked against them to 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 wait that far back in on returns. In rare instances, I mean, it, it's rare, but it does work against them. Notably, a, a great example is his loss to uh, Gilles Müller in uh, at Wimbledon, and uh, I can't believe he insisted for so long in that match to wait behind the court when it was over and over again hurting him. Uh, Gilles Müller was just exploiting that over and over again, even in that long fifth set. And, uh, and he's just still kept on staying in the back of the court so far back. I, I don't know why he kept doing that. But so, you know, there, these are a little bit of, um, uh, I just kind of kind of wanted to bring in these nuances, not to say that, uh, you know, Rafa does those things incredibly well, but both of them, but uh, he's not the first one to wait in the back of the, you know, by the, by the backdrop. And uh, the fact that he's waiting that far back is not 100% always working for him either. But for the most, for most of the time, yes, it is. I mean, he, he did hit his head uh, before the match with uh, Müller. I assume that's the match you mean in 2018, is it? Like 20, the one at Wimbledon, right? 2017. Right. 2017, yeah. That's the head bump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we can't blame him for the strategy in that match. <laughs> oh, you, you think he heard it? Okay. <laughs> so his, his brain was not at 100%. <laughs> Well, it really was it. Let me bring that. In, let me bring this in in that match too. And I, you know, I mentioned this, uh, you know, the, the 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 decline in his forehand starting 2014. And by the way, when I say decline, of course, we're talking by Rafa standards here. The guy's forehand is still one of the best in the world, even today. But uh, but but I'm talking from his standards. Uh, when uh, when in, from 2014 on, when his forehand did decline, you know, I can point to three or four crucial matches that. Rafa lost because of because of key misses on his forehand and and that's one of them. He has two break points against Müller late in the fifth set in those extension games, and he made and he missed uh, forehand sitters on both of those. And you know he breaks those serves and he and he wins that match. But he he's lost matches with backhand sitters as well. So I mean Australian Open final twenty twelve. Yes, but uh, that would be uh, I would I could I could point to more of his forehand loss. Well, okay, that's 2012. Yes, I agree with you there. His backhand, his forehand is uh, is definitely ahead of his backhand at that time. Yeah. But I think, uh, in all fairness, I think uh, he like Naval said he's missed like some famous backhands. But overall, I think the 2015 and middle of 2016 decline was due to the forehand breaking down in the Luca Pui match, the Fonini match, right? The Wawrinka wins came in those two years, uh, you know, at the, at the O2 and at Rome and Clay. And yeah, so definitely I think the forehand was, had a lot to do with uh, Nadal not being Nadal in those two years. Yeah, I mean, it's just his, his you know, it's, if you look at his career, you know, his career kind of goes as his forehand goes. You know, it's, his best years are when he hits his forehand the best. And even the 2017 Australian Open final, you know, he misses a key forehand there against Roger in the, in the fifth set when, uh, when he's about to go, he's about, you know, he, in, he could, it's a forehand that he misses, it clips the net and goes yeah, out yeah, and it's yeah. a sitter that he would otherwise, you know, back in 2012, 13, he, he's not going to miss. Yep. Painful memories, Mert, but thank you. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I would know, once again we're talking you know uh, his forehand is still I, I'll, i'm sure 99 out of 100 atp players that you ask will say yeah i'll take his forehand any day over mine <laughs> that's true no but again uh, Mert is again 
Yeah, the, the Murder is one of the best accounts to follow. I'm lucky we have him here. And Susie made that introduction a few years ago. And I picked his brain, you know, on so many tennis, tennis related topics. So, so I think we covered quite a lot. Everybody, you know, uh, I think has a lot to say before we go one last check in here. Is there anything left, Bree, that you want to uh, you want to express or take the floor? Doesn't have to be a question. Um, I did have a question that came to me while we were talking. This is maybe for you guys that have seen more eras of tennis, but, you know, we keep trying to predict how many more French Opens Rafa will win, but do the players ever kind of give off signs that they're kind of aging out as they continue to age? Or is it just like a sudden, oh, there's somebody new? What can fans expect as Rafa continues to go down this journey? Hmm. I mean, I, I, I can take this too, but I think I'll give it to Mert in a few minutes. Uh, what I've learned is, again, and this again will, I'll, I'll sound like a dinosaur. What I've learned is uh, sometimes you can't take these guys at the, at the value of what they say at the press conferences because there's a lot going on, Right. Because uh, in Miami, I saw Federer and Djokovic when I was there in personal capacity. Both came right away after their losses. Djokovic lost to Benoit Pair. He didn't look like himself. Federer, you know, next day gets uh, knocked out by Kokinakis. Usually the ATP tells you when these guys will be there and you're still clapping for the other guy. And then they say, oh, Roger Federer is in the press conference. So the point I'm trying to make is I'll go back to uh, Boris Becker when he suddenly announced his retirement. Uh, after losing to Pete Sampras, there was no sign. I mean, yeah, he was, he had an injury here and that was my tennis universe back then. I would follow Becker like, you know, I possibly can from far. I was saving money to go see him, you know, in 98. And uh, he said in a press conference in Hamburg, I remember clearly that I have a lot of tennis left. I wish I could find that quote. And two months later, uh, he said to Sampras, okay, you know, I feel like I'm second best on this court. That's not going to change. So I'm out. So I don't know. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that's a gold standard, but a lot of times what they say and what they appear is two different things. People can be emotional. They can just, you know, make a decision on the dime like Becker did. But then there is like uh, Safin, like, you know, he was done at 2008. His, uh, the story is his agent got him a contract to play from Adidas or his sponsors to play one more year. So 2009 was like a farewell year, which Safin is not a guy who's going to come to every tournament to say farewell. He was pretty open that I got a great contract by my agent, so I'll play one more year. And big three are a different anomaly. I let Murd weigh in, but uh, that's how I see it. Sometimes the signs could be there. You can see it. And sometimes there are no signs and an announcement comes. Murd, what do you think? Yeah, I would think that it's different for guys like Rafa uh, than it is for... I don't know, for someone ranked in the 10s and 20s, perhaps in their career as their highest spot. But uh, someone like Rafa or Roger or Novak, for that matter, uh, I'm not sure if they want to stick around, if they cannot be if they cannot be in a position to vie for titles, for big titles anymore. You know, I don't think they'll pull, for example, Leighton Hewitt. You know, Leighton Hewitt played for years past his prime where he probably knew himself that he was not going to win a major or be go or, you know, go up to number one again, but he kept on playing because he loves the game and the loves the competition, you know, as much as Roger uh, and Rafa and Novak love the competition at their ages, I'm not sure that they would stick around if they don't believe anymore that they can, 
vie for titles. I don't think they'll stick around if they're thinking, okay, my goal is now to make the second week of a major. I don't think they'll stick around once, once that stage arrives. That's my uh, brief answer to that. Yeah, break. Uh, does that, uh, I know like mine was more like a curveball. Uh, are you satisfied with what Mert had to say? Is there a follow-up question? Yes, those are both great answers that you guys gave me. Um, I do not have a follow-up question. Okay. Brie and Noel, I do have a question for you guys. And, you know, you guys accused me of uh, uh, bringing up painful memories earlier. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to hope that you guys don't hate me, but I'm going to bring up one more painful <laughs> question. Cause I'm, I'm curious from the fan standpoint, uh, what, uh, what you guys think, what, what would be the one, uh, the one thing that you guys feel is missing in, uh, in, uh, you know, for, for, for Rafa's career, what, what do you wish the one thing that uh, took place for him that, uh, that you felt could have taken place, you know, it would have been an even better career if it took place, at least so far, you know, because his career is still going. I mean, from a non-fan standpoint, from just a tennis lover uh, standpoint, and I love Rafa uh, as a player, I mean, he's, he's, he's great. But I think, for example, him not winning the ATP finals is a, is a hole in his career. But that's, for me, that's as a tennis player. Um, Uh, just to, you know, I'm 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 not a particularly a Rafa fan. Just like I'm not a fan of any other player. But what do you guys? Um, what what would you guys say? Is there a specific match you can point to, or an overall career uh, thing that you would like him to conquer at from this point forward? Do you want to go first, Nawal? I think we're going to have the same response, so I'll let you go first. <laughs> okay. Well, for me personally. I would like to see Rafa get another Australian Open. Um, I know everyone always talks about the World Tour Finals as the missing jewel in his cabinet. But uh, for me, I don't really like the World Tour Finals as a tournament. I really don't like indoor tennis, and I hate how it never changes surfaces. So I, I just don't like that tournament. But um, for the longest, I've really wanted him to get the achievement of having the um, career double slam. Um, yeah, that's just something that I've always wanted. Uh, excuse me. It's the career double golden slam. There we go. And, uh, nobody else in history would have that. Uh, I, I think Serena would have it, but, um, basically on the men's side, uh, it would only be Rafa if he won another Australian open. And that tournament is just painful for me because he's been close. As you guys know, um, the closest being that final against Stan, uh, Wawrinka. And then he had the back issues, got injured in the warm-up. That was pretty devastating. But um, I still have hope that he will get another Australian Open. I have not given up. Uh, Djokovic could get uh, food poisoning or something. Something could happen. <laughs> And Rafa's going to be there. I have hope. <laughs> I would definitely also say Australian Open because – I mean, uh, 2017 final against better the, the Novak final, and then... While she's muting, I can also say that uh, I forgot that the 2012 Australian Open was particularly painful. <laughs> I still remember that backhand down the line that he missed, uh, and it's, it's, it's horrifying. Brie, was that um, what was that on actually a break point? I can't remember the exact point when that happened. I remember the shot. I remember the whole point. Uh, what was this? What was the exact score when that happened? 
Um, it was the fifth set. I believe Rafa would have had break points to go up to four in the fifth. Um, it's sad how I can remember this, if that's correct. But um, okay. <laughs> okay. I believe that was it. And he missed the backhand. So Djokovic held for three all, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the yeah, it's definitely a key point in the match. I'm not sure if, um, you know, it's the points are like that are sometimes... Um, you know, it's it's hard. It's I I can't really call the match point in the same way that uh, I can't call Djokovic's overhead miss. You know, where he clips the net in that 2013 French Open semifinal. Uh, I know a lot of people like to point to that too. But if if it happened that, like you say, at still two three, I'm not sure if uh, if if it's hard to blame. And if it's not on a break point, by the way, like if that was I, that, that's why I was asking, was it actually on a break point? Had he made that? backhand passing shot would he have gone up for two or was it was it before that that's what i was asking right i believe it was a break point um okay then it's huge yeah then it's huge the overhead i the overhead was not a break point. yeah right a, in fact in fact Djokovic won the next point to get back to uh to get Deuce. back to how it was yeah so it, it's while it was a very very important point it was not uh it was not a match deciding uh error Noel, finish your thoughts on uh, uh, what had, what Mert had asked. What is like one missing link that you would want Rafa to add? Yeah, so um, I would definitely say the same as Brie, like the Australian Open. Um, the World Tour finals are important, but at the same time, it's always at the end of the season and Rafa is always, I don't want to say injured, but at least tired, very tired. So it's never been very important to me to be honest <laughs> uh and the australian open i mean he had five he lost five finals and um the 2012 final was really close 2017 as well and then we had the 2014 one where he got injured and if it hadn't been for the injury i mean who knows but he he did ha- he had never lost to Vavrinka before that so i don't know yeah, he's it, had a couple uh, other injuries, uh, right? In Australia, one injury was against like, Murray, I think, in 20, uh, 2010. And then there's an injury against Ferrer, right? So he has had a lot of against bad luck. Chilich as well. Yeah. Yeah, Chilich too, uh, exactly, in 2018. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this year with the back, it's a painful slant. It's not the happy slant for, for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I was just thinking when Bree and uh, uh, Nawal gave their responses, just like you know, the old fan in me comes out because the big three have just made the men's tennis about majors. And, uh, Mert, you, you and I can relate that in the Sampras, Becker, Lendl, McIndoe eras, the World Tour finals meant something because none of the guys will dominate the tour like these guys do in, you know, or have done the last 16, 17 years. So the importance of other tournaments have kind of diminished. If you look at from the fans' perspective, this is again their legacy, you know, which is, I don't know if that legacy is going to be upheld by the future generation. So let's wrap this up, Mert. Uh, Is there anything uh, you think Nadal has done differently compared to everyone else that has played the sport or fire away uh, with final thoughts? Sure. I mean, look, the the, the one thing that... uh... That Rafa does, in my opinion, better than any anyone in the open era, and the only other player that comes close to him in this in this um, in this category is Bjorn Borg. Uh, if I had to, if my life depended 
uh, on someone playing a full match from for me from first point to last point, uh, I'd want Rafa to be holding that racket. If you know, and like I said, Borg a very close second behind him, or, or he, Borg is the only guy for whom I would accept a a fair argument against this, uh, and no one else, because uh, he because Rafa is the only guy who will play from first point to the last point in the match 99.9% of the time the same way that he would play a 5-all a 5-all point in the tiebreaker versus a 40-love 4-1 point in the first set and uh, he never signs off he's uh, he's probably the best example of in the now you know that cliche phrase in the now staying in the now that uh, that I've ever seen in in open era tennis and if there's one thing that he does better than any other player that, that I've seen for this long a period of time is the fact that uh, he plays from first point to the last point, never signing off. Not, I mean, never is a big word, but 99.9% of the time not signing off, not losing his intensity, not losing concentration. And, uh, you know, and he's made a career out of winning games where he's out completely 40 love. And in that 40 love point, there's a ball that bounces uh, six meters away from him. And other people may not even try for that at 40 love, but he runs it down and somehow wins that point and then wins the next point and then gets back into the game and ends up winning that game. He made a career out of winning points like that. He made a career out of winning sets where he was out completely. He made a career out of winning matches where you would think that he was down a set and out, but he comes back and wins. And uh, he's he won more of those matches than uh, than any other thing. The the biggest example uh, I can give you is the 2013 uh, U.S. Open final against Novak. I mean, I, I think in, uh, there was a point in the third set where nobody thought everybody thought that uh, Novak was going to run at least with the third set away, and then uh, and then and, you know Nadal comes back from. But that's just one example. I don't want st- to. I should I shouldn't have even given that example. It's just in general he's. He wins match after match throughout the years that uh, because of his ability to stay in the now. No, I think that's a fair example because uh, that's, again, the legacy of the big three, how they have had moments against each other where they have reinvented or gone to the drawing board. And that's, yeah. I think, that kind of match, I think, put Novak Djokovic and Boris Becker partnership together. So I think it's a fair yeah, example. Me, not to cut you in the middle, but let me let me just add this. And, and this is not, uh, you know, I w- this should not be either... Uh, this should neither. This should not be a Rafa Novak Roger conversation either. In fact, if I had to rank, you know, who does this best in in the open era? You know, in other words, playing every single point at the top of their uh, concentration level. Uh, the, the, even Rafa's contemporary main rivals, that's Roger and Novak, have periods of games here and there in a match where they lose concentration or their level drops. Does Rafa does Rafa's level drop here and there? To sure, but it's it's nowhere near as drastic as the, as everyone else's, and and it lasts very short if it if it exists at all. Okay, and he and his level usually doesn't drop because he loses concentration. Okay, and I can point to matches where Novak, Roger, or anyone in the open era have lost in in a, in a given set their focus and just let four or five games go in a row. Sure. If if I had to nitpick and look at every single match of Rafa, maybe I can catch one or two. In fact, I can think of one right now, but it's far, far less than any other player in the open era. I'm not talking about Novak and Roger. I know 
people have a, a myopic view of the fact that they think that, you know, these three, that's, that's as far as the tennis world goes. But there have been many great players in the open era, and none of them do this as well as Rafa does. I think that's a brilliant way to end this homage to Rafael Nadal. And I thank you all for taking time out on a weekend. It's a Saturday and uh, we've gone good 20 minutes over, but which is a good thing. Looks like, you know, we had a lot to say. Uh, Noel made a great debut. Bree, always a pleasure hosting you. Uh, and uh, Mert, uh, same for you. Uh, let's do this again at some point this year. And uh, thanks for listening. And yeah, it was a pleasure.